Chapter Four of Dombey and Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dombey and Son by Charles Dickens. Chapter Four, in which some more first appearances are made on the stage of these adventures though the offices of dombey and son were within the liberties of the city of london and within hearing of bow bells when their clashing voices were not drowned by the uproar in the streets yet were there hints of adventurous and romantic story to be observed in some of the adjacent objects gog and magog held their state within ten minutes walk the royal exchange was close at hand the bank of england with its vaults of gold and silver down among the dead men underground was their magnificent neighbour just round the corner stood the rich east india house teeming with suggestions of precious stuffs and stones tigers elephants hoodahs hookahs umbrellas palm trees palanquins and gorgeous princes of a brown complexion sitting on carpets with their slippers very much turned up at the toes anywhere in the immediate vicinity there might be seen pictures of ships speeding away full sail to all parts of the world outfitting warehouses ready to pack off anybody anywhere fully equipped in half an hour and little timber midshipmen in obsolete naval uniforms eternally employed outside the shop doors of nautical instrument makers in taking observations of the hackney coaches sole master and proprietor of one of these effigies of that which might be called familiarly the woodenest of that which thrust itself out above the pavement right leg foremost with a suavity the least endurable and had the shoe buckles and flap waistcoat the least reconcilable to human reason and bore at its right eye the most offensively disproportionate piece of machinery sole master and proprietor of that midshipman and proud of him too an elderly gentleman in a welsh wig had paid house-rent taxes and dues for more years than many a full-grown midshipman of flesh and blood has numbered in his life and midshipmen who have attained a pretty green old age have not been wanting in the english navy the stock in trade of this old gentleman comprised chronometers barometers telescopes compasses charts maps sextants quadrants and specimens of every kind of instrument used in the working of a ship's course or the keeping of a ship's reckoning or the prosecuting of a ship's discoveries objects in brass and glass were in his drawers and on his shelves which none but the initiative could have found the top of or guessed the use of or having once examined 
could have ever got back again into their mahogany nests without assistance. Everything was jammed into the tightest cases, fitted into the narrowest corners, fenced up behind the most impertinent cushions, and screwed into the acutest angles to prevent its philosophical composure from being disturbed by the rolling of the sea. Such extraordinary precautions were taken in every instance to save room and keep the thing compact, and so much practical navigation was fitted and cushioned and screwed into every box, whether the box was a mere slab, as some were, or something between a cocked hat and a starfish, as others were and those quite mild and modest boxes as compared with others, that the shop itself, partaking of the general infection, seemed almost to become a snug, sea-going, ship-shape concern, wanting only good sea-room in the event of an unexpected launch to work its way securely to any desert island in the world. Many minor incidents in the household life of the ship's instrument maker, who was proud of his little midshipman, assisted and bore out this fancy. His acquaintance, lying chiefly among ship chandlers and so forth, he had always plenty of the veritable ship's biscuit on his table. It was familiar with dried meats and tongues, possessing an extraordinary flavor of rope yarn. Pickles were produced upon it in great wholesale jars, with dealer in all kinds of ship's provisions, on the label. Spirits were set forth in case bottles with no throats. Old prints of ships with alphabetical reference to their various mysteries hung in frames upon the walls. The Tartar frigate under way was on the plates, outlandish shells, seaweeds, and mosses decorated the chimney-piece, the little wainscoted back parlor was lighted by a skylight, like a cabin. Here he lived, too, in skipper-like state, all alone with his nephew Walter, a boy of fourteen who looked quite enough like a midshipman to carry out the prevailing idea. But there it ended, for Solomon Gills himself, more generally called Old Sol, was far from having a maritime appearance, to say nothing of his Welsh wig, which was as plain and stubborn a Welsh wig as ever was born, and in which he looked like anything but a rover. He was a slow, quiet-spoken, thoughtful old fellow, with eyes as red as if they had been small suns looking at you through a fog, and a newly awakened manner, such as he might have acquired by having stared for three or four days successively through every optical instrument in his shop, and suddenly came back to the world again to find it green. The only change ever known in his outward man was from a complete suit of coffee color cut very square and ornamented with glaring buttons 
to the same suit of coffee colour minus the inexpressibles, which were then of a pale nankeen. He wore a very precise shirt-frill, and carried a pair of first-rate spectacles on his forehead, and a tremendous chronometer in his fob, rather than doubt which precious possession he would have believed in a conspiracy against it on the part of all the clocks and watches in the city, and even of the very sun itself. Such as he was, such he had been in the shop and parlour behind the little midshipman, for years upon years, going regularly aloft to bed every night in a howling garret remote from the lodgers, where, when gentlemen of England, who lived below at ease, had little or no idea of the state of the weather, it often blew great guns. It is half-past five o'clock, and an autumn afternoon, when the reader and Solomon Gills become acquainted. Solomon Gills is in the act of seeing what time it is by the unimpeachable chronometer. The usual daily clearance has been making in the city for an hour or more, and the human tide is still rolling westward. The streets have thinned, as Mr. Gills says, very much. It threatens to be wet to-night. All the weather-glasses in the shop are in low spirits, and the rain already shines upon the cocked hat of the wooden midship. "'Where's Walter, I wonder?' said Solomon Gills, after he had carefully put up the chronometer again. "'Here's dinner been ready half an hour, and no Walter.' Turning round upon his stool behind the counter, Mr. Gills looked out among the instruments in the window, to see if his nephew might be crossing the road. No, he was not among the bobbing umbrellas, and he certainly was not the newspaper boy in the oilskin cap who was slowly working his way along the piece of brass outside, writing his name over Mr. Gill's name with his forefinger. If I didn't know he was too fond of me to make a run of it, and go and enter himself aboard ship against my wishes, I should begin to be fidgety," said Mr. Gills, tapping two or three weather-glasses with his knuckles. I really should. All in the downs, eh? Lots of moisture. Well, it's wanted. I believe, said Mr. Gills, blowing the dust off the glass top of a compass case, that you don't point more direct and do to the back parlour than the boy's inclination does after all. And the parlour couldn't bear straighter either, due north, not the twentieth part of a point either way. Hello, Uncle Sol. Hello, my boy, cried the instrument-maker, turning briskly round. What? You are here, are you? A cheerful-looking merry boy, fresh with running home in the rain, fair-faced, bright-eyed, and curly-haired. "'Well, uncle, how have you got on without me all day? Is dinner ready? I'm so hungry.' "'As to getting on,' said Solomon good-naturedly, "'it would be odd if I couldn't get on without a young dog like you a great deal better than with you. As to dinner being ready, 
it's been ready this half hour and waiting for you as to being hungry i am come along then uncle cried the boy hurrah for the admiral confound the admiral returned solomon gills you mean the lord mayor no i don't cried the boy hurrah for the admiral hurrah for the admiral forward at this word of command the welsh wig and its wearer were borne without resistance into the back parlour as at the head of a boarding party of five hundred men and uncle sol and his nephew were speedily engaged on a fried sole with a prospect of steak to follow the lord mayor wally said solomon forever no more admirals the lord mayor's your admiral oh is he though said the boy shaking his head why the sword-bearer's better than him he draws his sword sometimes and a pretty figure he cuts with it for his pains returned the uncle listen to me wally listen to me look on the mantel-shelf why who has cocked my silver mug up there on a nail exclaimed the boy i have said his uncle no more mugs now we must begin to drink out of glasses to-day walter we are men of business we belong to the city we started in life this morning well uncle said the boy i'll drink out of anything you like so long as i can drink to you here's to you uncle sol and hurrah for the lord mayor interrupted the old man for the lord mayor sheriffs common council and livery said the boy long life to em the uncle nodded his head with great satisfaction and now he said let's hear something about the firm oh there's not much to be told about the firm uncle said the boy plying his knife and fork it's a precious dark set of offices and the room where i sit there's a high fender and an iron safe and some cards about ships that are going to sail and an almanac and some desks and stools and an ink bottle and some books and some boxes and a lot of cobwebs and in one of em just over my head a shrivelled up blue bottle that looks as if it had hung there ever so long nothing else said the uncle no nothing else except an old bird cage i wonder how that ever came there and a coal scuttle no bankers books or cheque-books or bills or such tokens of wealth rolling in from day to day said old sol looking wistfully at his nephew out of the fog that always seemed to hang about him and laying an unctuous emphasis upon the words oh yes plenty of that i suppose returned his nephew carelessly but all that sort of things in mr carker's room or mr morfin's or mr dombey's has mr dombey been there to-day inquired the uncle oh yes in and out all day he didn't take any notice of you i suppose yes he did he walked up to my seat i wish he wasn't so solemn and stiff uncle and said oh you are the son of mr gills the ship's instrument maker nephew sir i said i said nephew boy said he but i could take my oath he said son uncle 
"'You're mistaken, I dare say. It's no matter.' "'No, it's no matter, but he needn't have been so sharp, I thought. "'There was no harm in it, though. He did say, son. "'Then he told me that you had spoken to him about me, "'and that he had found me employment in the house accordingly, "'and that I was expected to be attentive and punctual, and then he went away.' I thought he didn't seem to like me much. You mean, I suppose, observed the instrument-maker, that you didn't seem to like him much. Well, uncle, returned the boy, laughing, perhaps not. I never thought of that. Solomon looked a little graver as he finished his dinner, and glanced from time to time at the boy's bright face. When dinner was done, and the cloth was cleared away, the entertainment had been brought from a neighboring eating-house. He lighted a candle and went down below into a little cellar, while his nephew, standing on the moldy staircase, dutifully held the light. After a moment's groping here and there, he presently returned with a very ancient-looking bottle covered with dust and dirt. "'Why, Uncle Saul,' said the boy, "'what are you about? That's the wonderful Madeira. There's only one more bottle.' Uncle Saul nodded his head, implying that he knew very well what he was about, and having drawn the cork in solemn silence, filled two glasses and set the bottle and a third clean glass on the table. "'You shall drink the other bottle, Wally,' he said, "'when you come to good fortune, "'when you are a thriving, respected, happy man, "'when the start in life you have made to-day "'shall have brought you, as I pray heaven it may, "'to a smooth part of the course you have to run, my child. "'My love to you.' "'Some of the fog that hung about old Saul "'seemed to have got into his throat,' for he spoke huskily. His hand shook, too, as he clinked his glass against his nephew's, but having once got the wine to his lips, he tossed it off like a man and smacked them afterwards. "'Dear uncle,' said the boy, affecting to make light of it, while the tears stood in his eyes, "'for the honour you have done me, etc., etc., I shall now beg to propose Mr. Solomon Gills with three times three and one cheer more. Hurrah! And you'll return thanks, uncle, when we drink the last bottle together, won't you? They clinked their glasses again, and Walter, who was hoarding his wine, took a sip of it and held the glass up to his eye with as critical an air as he could possibly assume. His uncle sat looking at him for some time in silence. When their eyes at last met, he began at once to pursue the theme that had occupied his thoughts aloud, as if he had been speaking all the while. "'You see, Walter,' he said, "'in truth, this business is merely a habit with me.' I am so accustomed to the habit that I could hardly live if I relinquished it. But there's nothing doing, nothing doing. When that uniform was worn, pointing out towards the little midshipman, 
then indeed fortunes were to be made and were made but competition competition new invention new invention alteration alteration the world's gone past me i hardly know where i am myself much less where my customers are never mind em uncle since you came home from weekly boarding school at peckham for instance and that's ten days said solomon i don't remember more than one person that has come into the shop two uncle don't you recollect there was the man who came to ask for change for a sovereign that's the one said solomon why uncle don't you call the woman anybody who came to ask the way to mile end turnpike oh it's true said solomon i forgot her two persons to be sure they didn't buy anything cried the boy no they didn't buy anything said solomon quietly nor want anything cried the boy no if they had they'd have gone to another shop said solomon in the same tone but there were two of em uncle cried the boy as if that were a great triumph you said only one well wally resumed the old man after a short pause not being like the savages who came on robinson crusoe's island we can't live on a man who asks for change for a sovereign and a woman who inquires the way to mile end turnpike as i said just now the world has gone past me i don't blame it but i no longer understand it tradesmen are not the same as they used to be apprentices are not the same business is not the same business commodities are not the same seven-eighths of my stock is old-fashioned i am an old-fashioned man in an old-fashioned shop in a street that is not the same as i remember it i have fallen behind the time am too old to catch it again even the noise it makes a long way ahead confuses me walter was going to speak but his uncle held up his hand therefore wally therefore it is that i am anxious you should be early in the busy world and on the world's track i am only the ghost of this business its substance vanished long ago and when i die its ghost will be laid as it is clearly no inheritance for you then i have thought it best to use for your advantage almost the only fragment of the old connection that stands by me through long habit some people suppose me to be wealthy i wish for your sake they were right but whatever i leave behind me or whatever i can give you you in such a house as dombey's are in the road to use well and make the most of it be diligent try to like it my dear boy work for a steady independence and be happy i'll do everything i can uncle to deserve your affection indeed i will said the boy earnestly i know it said solomon i am sure of it and he applied himself to a second glass of the old madeira with increased relish as to the sea he pursued that's well enough in fiction wally but it won't do in fact 
it won't do at all. It's natural enough that you should think about it, associating it with all these familiar things, but it won't do, it won't do. Solomon Gills rubbed his hands with an air of stealthy enjoyment as he talked of the sea, though, and looked on the seafaring objects about him with inexpressible complacency. "'Think of this wine, for instance,' said old Sol, "'which has been to the East Indies and back. I'm not able to say how often, and has been once round the world.' Think of the pitch-dark nights, the roaring winds and rolling seas, the thunder, lightning, rain, hail, storm of all kinds, said the boy. To be sure, said Solomon, that this wine has passed through. Think what a straining and creaking of timbers and masts, what a whistling and howling of the gale through ropes and rigging, what a clamoring aloft of men, vying with each other who shall lie out first upon the yards to furl the icy sails while the ship rolls and pitches like mad cried his nephew exactly so said solomon has gone on over the old cask that held this wine why when the charming sally went down in the in the Baltic Sea, in the dead of the night, five and twenty minutes past twelve, when the captain's watch stopped in his pocket, he lying dead against the mainmast, on the fourteenth of February, seventeen forty nine, cried Walter with great animation. Ay, to be sure, cried old Sol, quite right. Then there were five hundred casks of such wine aboard, and all hands, except the first mate, first lieutenant, two seamen, and a lady in a leaky boat, going to work to stave the casks, got drunk and died drunk, singing Rule Britannia, when she settled and went down, and ending with one awful scream in chorus. But when the George the Second drove ashore, uncle, on the coast of Cornwall in a dismal gale, two hours before daybreak on the fourth of march seventy one she had near two hundred horses aboard and the horses breaking loose down below early in the gale and tearing to and fro and trampling each other to death made such noises and set up such human cries that the crew believing the ship to be full of devils some of the best men losing heart and head went overboard in despair and only two were left alive at last to tell the tale and when said old sol when the polyphemus private west india trader burdened three hundred and fifty tons captain john brown of deptford owners wiggs and company cried walter the same said sol when she took fire four days sail with a fair wind out of jamaica harbor in the night there were two brothers on board interposed his nephew speaking very fast and loud and there not being room for both of them in the only boat that wasn't swamped neither of them would consent to go until the eldest took the younger by the waist and flung him in and then the younger rising in the boat cried out 
dear edward think of your promised wife at home i'm only a boy no one waits at home for me leap down into my place and flung himself into the sea the kindling eye and heightened colour of the boy who had risen from his seat in the earnestness of what he said and felt seemed to remind old sol of something he had forgotten or that his encircling mist had hitherto shut out instead of proceeding with any more anecdotes as he had evidently intended but a moment before he gave a short dry cough and said well suppose we change the subject the truth was that the simple-minded uncle in his secret attraction toward the marvellous and adventurous of which he was in some sort a distant relation by his trade had greatly encouraged the same attraction in the nephew and that everything that had ever been put before the boy to deter him from a life of adventure had had the usual unaccountable effect of sharpening his taste for it this is invariable it would seem as if there never was a book written or a story told expressly with the object of keeping boys on shore which did not lure and charm them to the ocean as a matter of course but an addition to the little party now made its appearance in the shape of a gentleman in a wide suit of blue with a hook instead of a hand attached to his right wrist very bushy black eyebrows and a thick stick in his left hand covered all over like his nose with knobs he wore a loose black silk handkerchief round his neck and such a very large coarse shirt-collar that it looked like a small sail he was evidently the person for whom the spare wine-glass was intended and evidently knew it for having taken off his rough outer coat and hung up on a particular peg behind the door such a hard glazed hat as a sympathetic person's head might ache at the sight of and which left a red rim round his own forehead as if he had been wearing a tight basin he brought a chair to where the clean glass was and sat himself down behind it he was usually addressed as captain this visitor and had been a pilot or a skipper or a privateersman or all three perhaps and was a very salt-looking man indeed his face remarkable for a brown solidity brightened as he shook hands with uncle and nephew but he seemed to be of a laconic disposition and merely said how goes it ah oh, well said mr gills pushing the bottle towards him he took it up and having surveyed and smelt it said with extraordinary expression the the returned the instrument maker upon that he whistled as he filled his glass and seemed to think they were making holiday indeed walter he said arranging his hair which was thin with his hook and then pointing it at the instrument maker 
Look at him. Love, honor, and obey. Overhaul your catechism till you find that passage, and when found, turn the leaf down. Success, my boy. He was so perfectly satisfied, both with his quotation and his reference to it, that he could not help repeating the words again in a low voice, and saying he had forgotten them these forty year. But I never wanted two or three words in my life that I didn't know where to lay my hand upon em, Gills, he observed. It comes of not wasting language, as some do. The reflection perhaps reminded him that he had better, like young Norval's father, increase his store. At any rate, he became silent and remained so until old Saul went out into the shop to light it up, when he turned to Walter and said, without any introductory remark, I suppose he could make a clock if he tried. I shouldn't wonder, Captain Cuddle, returned the boy. And it would go, said Captain Cuddle, making a species of serpent in the air with his hook. Lord, how that clock would go! For a moment or two he seemed quite lost in contemplating the pace of this ideal timepiece, and sat looking at the boy as if his face were the dial. "'But he's chock-full of science,' he observed, waving his hook toward the stock-in-trade. "'Looky here. Here's a collection of em. Earth, air, or water. It's all one.' Only say where you'll have it. Up in a balloon? There you are. Down in a bell? There you are. Do you want to put the North Star in a pair of scales and weigh it? He'll do it for you. It may be gathered from these remarks that Captain Cuddle's reverence for the stock of instruments was profound, and that his philosophy knew little or no distinction between trading in it and inventing it. Aha! he said with a sigh. It's a fine thing to understand em, and yet it's a fine thing not to understand em. I hardly know which is best. It's so comfortable to sit here and feel that you might be weighted, measured, magnified, electrified, polarized, played the very devil with, and never know how. Nothing short of the wonderful Madeira, combined with the occasion, which rendered it desirable to improve and expand Walter's mind, could have ever loosened his tongue to the extent of giving utterance to this prodigious oration. He seemed quite amazed himself at the manner in which it opened up to view the sources of the taciturn delight he had had in eating Sunday dinners in that parlour for ten years. Becoming a sadder and wiser man, he mused and held his peace. "'Come!' cried the subject of his admiration, returning. "'Before you have your glass of grog, Ned, we must finish the bottle.' "'Stand by,' said Ned, filling his glass. "'Give the boy some more.' "'No more, thank you, uncle.' "'Yes, yes,' said Saul. "'A little more. "'We'll finish the bottle. "'To the house, Ned. "'Walter's house. "'Why, it may be his house one of these days, in part. "'Who knows? "'Sir Richard Whittington married his master's daughter.' 
turn again whittington lord mayor of london and when you are old you will never depart from it interposed the captain walter overhaul the book my lad and although mr dombey hasn't a daughter saul began yes yes he has uncle said the boy reddening and laughing has he cried the old man indeed i think he has too oh i know he has said the boy some of em were talking about it in the office to-day and they do say uncle and captain cuttle lowering his voice that he's taken a dislike to her and that she's left unnoticed among the servants and that his mind's so set all the while upon having his son in the house that although he's only a baby now he is going to have balances struck oftener than formerly and the books kept closer than they used to be and has even been seen when he thought he wasn't walking in the docks looking at his ships and property and all that as if he was exulting like over what he and his son will possess together that's what they say of course i don't know he knows all about her already you see said the instrument maker nonsense uncle cried the boy still reddening and laughing boy-like how can i help hearing what they tell me the sun's a little in our way at present i'm afraid ned said the old man humouring the joke very much said the captain nevertheless we'll drink him pursued saul so here's to dombey and son oh very well uncle said the boy merrily since you have introduced the mention of her and have connected me with her and have said that i know all about her i shall make bold to amend the toast so here's to dombey and son and daughter End of chapter four